Welcome, welcome, welcome to Chromatic Distortion with Corey Caesar. What's going on, everybody? I'll tell you what time it is. It's time for episode 56 of Chromatic Distortion. I'm your host, Corey Caesar. This is the Waco episode that I told you was coming. Um, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day, so it's proper um, to be recording this on this day. And uh, this will come out Monday. I'm going to try to get it done in one part. If I have to break it up into two, if it gets too long, I'll, I'll break it up in, into two parts. Um, and I'm doing this because, obviously, uh, the Netflix drama documentary whatever you want to call it. it's actually a drama it's a show it's like five or six um five or six parts and that it's, it's really well it's done it's done well um by david david thibodeau was one of the dudes he was inside he was the drummer if you watched it um he escaped and, and he 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 wrote a book and um helped the show develop the what was going on inside and then the negotiator the lead negotiator he wrote a book and he helped um that story as well. So actually, it's really accurate. Um, normally, normally dramas are, are not right. You know, they're way off. But that actually is a really good drama. It gives you a very good baseline of what of what actually happened there. Um, but obviously, left out some good parts. And the good parts that you really need to see, that you really want to watch. And I'm a visual learner, so I'm better at at looking at at film and seeing like live testimony and seeing all that stuff, and then being able to deduce from there what actually happened. And I recommend everyone doing that because I'm going to do it a little different, different, um, how I'm going to break this episode down. I'm going to try to be objective as, as much as possible, you know, but not really. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to give a chronological timeline. I'm going to give facts about shit that really happened. I'm not going to speculate on anything, uh, uh, too, too much. Um, but the, the, the two shows you need to watch the two documentary documentary, and I'll actually, uh, quote them because they are, they do play important roles. In, in the actual investigation um, afterwards. But Waco, the rules of engagement, and you can find that on YouTube. And then and then after that, you want to watch Waco, A New Revelation. And you can also see that on YouTube. Now, they're longer. They're on the longer. The first one, that rules of engagement, is a little over two hours, about two hours and 15 minutes. Make yourself a drink. Sit down. Be ready. Okay, you're going to cry. Guarantee you're going to shed a tear. Whether you're a man, woman, gender neutral, you will shed a tear. Same thing with Waco, a new revelation. Uh, uh, grab a drink, grab a smoke, and maybe a tissue because you probably will uh, shed a tear as well. Um, all right, so we're just going to start with a little introduction um, about Waco in case you're new here. Um, on April 19, 1993, agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, they used tanks to assault a building that contained 76 men, women, and children. These tanks rammed holes through the walls of the buildings and sprayed tear gas inside. Because the adults in the building had gas masks, the FBI's tactical objective was to gas the children so as to prompt the parents to gather them up and flee the structure. After several hours of gassing, a fire broke out and almost everyone in the building died. That incident, which is now commonly referred to as Waco because it took place just a few miles outside of Waco, um, this is in Texas obviously, has become the most controversial law enforcement operation in modern American history. 
For years, questions have lingered about whether the federal government was completely forthright about what happened at Waco. Did the people in the building really commit mass suicide? Or was it closer to murder, with federal agents abusing their power and covering up their misdeeds? The official investigation of Waco um, was headed by former Missouri Senator John C. Danforth, whose report essentially exonerated the federal government of wrongdoing. The factual record, however, does not support his sweeping exoneration. On the contrary, it raises deeply disturbing questions, not only about the tactics used, but more generally about the mindset often found in America's increasingly militarized law enforcement agencies. Because several federal agencies were involved in the Waco incident, I will begin um, by chronicling the federal uh, government's actions and related events to provide a frame of reference for the conclusions that follow. I will then identify serious crimes that I believe were committed by the government agents at Waco, crimes that have never been thoroughly investigated or prosecuted. Um, my identification of crimes is not based on conspiracy theories or um, newly discovered evidence. Rather, I identify crimes on the basis of the undisputed actions of high-ranking federal officials. I conclude by identifying questionable conduct that warrants further investigations, or at least should have warranted further investigations. Um, like I said, this is going to be all based on facts. I'm not trying to spin it. I want you to watch those documentaries and make up your own mind, guys. Um, so he, let's, let's start. Okay, so I'm going to give a pretty exhaustive um, chronology of the events that take place uh, during this this whole ordeal, including including the uh, some of the investigations afterwards, right? Um, but it's, it's not everything that happened and it's not all the information that's available. That's why you want to really go watch those two, um, those two documentaries. I don't really want to get off too topic here and, and like go off in little rants, which I could do a lot on the end of each one of these little, these little clips, but I kind of want just to give you the order of it and then you go watch the, the films. All right. That's the, probably the best way to do it. Um, but what I'm going to give you should be. Um, a good enough frame of reference for the findings and the conclusions that I make following, if that makes sense. Um, so on June 4th, 1992, after receiving a tip about the possible manufacture of illegal firearms, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, also known as the ATF, they opened an investigation of a religious sect known as the Branch Davidians, and they were located at Mount Carmel Complex near Waco, Texas. Now, Mar Mount Carmel is a 77-acre ranch with several buildings. The main residence houses uh, approximately 100 men, women, and children. July 30th, 1992, ATF agents interviewed Texas firearm dealer Henry McMahon about his business dealings with Branch Davidian leader David Koresh. Now, during this interview, McMahon telephones Koresh. Koresh tells McMahon that, hey, if these ATF agents perceive any legal problem, they can come to Mount Carmel and they can check out his inventory and his paperwork. Open invitation. And the agents decline this invitation. Like, nah, we don't really want to look. We just want to set something up here. So fast forward a few months now to November 1992. Producers of CBS 60 Minutes contact ATF officials about a sexual harassment in the agency, requesting an interview with the director, Stephen Higgins. ATF officials brace themselves for what is going to be an unflattering report on national television. Now, 1992, I don't know if you guys know anything, but 60 Minutes was huge. It's where it's like the main, it was like the main shit, bro, for your news. 
for like the, you know, the hard hit stories. One month later, December 92, on the basis of information developed through its investigation, ATF somehow concludes that there is probable cause to believe that David Koresh is in violation of some federal firearm regulations. ATF begins to develop a plan to search the Mount Carmel uh, residence and to arrest Koresh. Now, January 10th, the next year, 93, 60 Minutes airs a story entitled uh, Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and the Harassment, a devastating report on sexual harassment within the ATF. Several female agents describe how they were sexually harassed by fellow agents and further describe the retaliation they received after they lodged complaints with their supervisors. Agent Bob Hoffman, who corroborated one of the female agents' complaints, tells Mike Wallace, quote, In my career with ATF, the people that I put in jail have more honor than the top administration um, in this organization. Think about that. I know it's sad commentary, but that's my experience with the ATF. January 21st, uh, 93, ATF solicits military assistance for its planned raid. Among other things, the ATF requests the use of military operations and urban terrain facility um, at Fort Hood, Texas. One month later, February 25th, ATF agents seek and obtain an arrest warrant for David Koresh and a search warrant for the Mount Carmel complex. The next day, February 26th, and this leads into the 27th, U.S. Army Special Forces at Fort Hood assist ATF agents in rehearsing a raid on the Branch Davidian residence that contains women and children. Okay? Keep that in your mind at all times. Women and children. February 28th, the very next day, the ATF tries to storm the Mount Carmel complex. Uh, about uh, at about this happens right about 9 a.m. National Guard helicopters carrying ATF agents they arrive first and they start circling the complex in an attempt to kind of divert the attention of the Branch Davidians. Moments later, two pickup trucks hauling covered cattle trailers pull into the driveway. The trucks and trailers contain 76 heavily armed ATF agents. As the agents exit the trailers and approach the front door of the complex, shots are fired and a fierce gun uh, gun battle ensues. The ATF and the Davidians accuse one another of firing the first shot. After an hour-long firefight, a ceasefire is arranged. The Davidians agree to hold their fire in return for the ATF's promise to leave the property. During the raid, ATF agents shoot and kill two Davidians and wound five others. The Davidians shoot and kill four ATF agents and wound 20 others. Measured in casualties, it's not only the worst day in the history of the ATF, but the worst day in the history of federal law enforcement. That afternoon, ATF agents and Texas uh, police surround Mount Carmel and telephone negotiations begin. This standoff will last another 51 days. On March 1st, 93, ATF relinquishes jurisdiction um, to the Department of Justice, and in particular to the FBI. The ATF at this point, you got to remember, is a compartment um, or a component of the Department of Treasury, and the FBI is a um, 
component of the Department of Justice. And this was like a really big thing of why this kind of took place and, and those documentaries will explain this better. But I want to move on. The next day, March 2nd, David Koresh promises to surrender to authorities if they agree to facilitate a national radio broadcast for him. A cassette tape is recorded and played on the Christian Broadcast Network, but Koresh does not surrender. Instead, he tells the FBI and his followers that God now has told him to wait. Within a week, however, 23 Davidians do leave the Mount Carmel complex. The adults are immediately arrested and jailed, like instantly. And then the children are then turned over to the Texas authorities um, or relatives. And just a quick note, in the documentary, there, the, the social worker who, who took in these, these children right away, she flat out said, these children were highly intelligent, they were well-mannered, they seemed they were well taken care of, and there was no uh, there was no signs of trauma or abuse. I'm just just to throw it out there. I'm not saying David Koresh didn't do anything to these kids, okay? But I'm just saying what was what was seen, at least from those kids. There's more kids, that, you know, obviously still in the building. Um, within a week, okay, that's where we are there. Okay, March eighth. So this is six days later now since those kids, those uh, the the twenty three Davidians leave on their own on their own wheel. He was always allowing them to leave. Um, ATF agents execute another search warrant for a property approximately five miles from Mount, Mount Carmel. Now, they break into a garage rented by one of the Davidians in hope of discovering incriminating evidence to give them you know, more reason to, to kick down these doors. The owner of the garage, who is not even a Branch Davidian, is kind of outraged. Um, because, you know, about these property damage. And he tells reporters, quote, the feds have torn the building to pieces. I don't understand why they had to do that. I offered yesterday to give them a key. So we, Koresh offered them to come look at his weapons. Check out my paperwork. I'll show you that where everything we're doing here is legal by law. And, uh, there you go. That dude was gonna give them a key. They're like they don't. They just didn't. They didn't want to do anything. They they just wanted. They wanted to be brute. They wanted to be, have brute force. That's all. It, that's all this was about. Uh, that eight that evening, the day uh, the Davidians send out videotapes of the children within Mount Carmel. Now the FBI had video camera equipment sent in and asked them to film the children to reassure the bureau that these these kids were all right. Like, listen, we're not gonna storm because there's kids. We just want to make sure they're okay. Here's some video video equipment. Record yourselves. After reviewing these videotapes, and you can see, and some of these videotapes will be played on those uh, documentaries that I that I mentioned at the beginning. Um, after reviewing these tapes, FBI agents conclude that it would not be in their interests to release the tapes to the media. A notion in an FBI logbook cautions that. Because Koresh shows his bullet wounds and explains the circumstances in which he was shot on February 28th, he would gain too much sympathy if the tapes were ever disclosed. Remember how last episode I said they, they need public opinion? They, they, they need the public mandate to do these unlawful un, um, acts? Well, here they are. They didn't want to release these tapes that they requested. They didn't want to release them to the media because it, it would paint the, the whole situation in a whole different light of what was really going on there. Think about that. This is the FBI. They're supposed to protect you. 
March 15th, ATF headquarters in Washington, D.C. orders its agents in Texas not to discuss the February 28th raid publicly. Because you know what? Because they, they shot first, um, which you'll see in the documentaries. The message implies that anyone who violates this order will be disciplined, dismissed, and possibly even prosecuted. <laughs> March 26th, David Troy, chief of intelligence for the ATF, defends his agency's February 28th raid. Troy tells reporters, quote, we feel confident that there were no mistakes made on our part. Troy dismisses critics of raid um, the raid as, quote, second guessers and Monday morning quarterbacks who do not have access to the facts because you are hiding them from us. March 28th, ATF field agents began speaking to reporters on the condition that their identities not be revealed. The New York Times reports that the ATF agents involved in this uh, in the initial raid have likened it to, quote, to the charge of the light brigade laden with missteps, miscalculations, and unheeded warnings that could have adverted bloodshed, end quote. Um, uh, one of them explained, uh, one of the unexplained issues raised by the New York Times, um, this report, is why the ATF did not try to arrest Koresh when he was away from Mount Carmel. Quote, at first, ATF officials said they believed Mr. Koresh remained in the compound for months at a time and could only be captured there. But many people in Waco insisted they had seen him at bars and jogging the weeks before the raid. Then in response to the apparent discrepancy, you know, once they're caught, the ATF conceded that it never conducted around-the-clock surveillance of Mr. Koresh. So it did not know whether or not he often left the compound. Think about that. You send in the military... ATF, FBI, hundreds of people raiding, and you haven't even done you haven't even done round the clock surveillance on this dude yet. I mean, what more do you need? Uh, another issue is whether the ATF had given the news media advance notice of the raid. According to the New York Times, ATF officials quote initially insisted that the raid had been conducted under the strictest secrecy, and that no members of the news media had been given any information that could have been construed as a tip off. But later, when questions again arose, they conceded that, oh, yeah, we lied again, and some news organizations had been called. In fact, it was supposed to be a, um, it was literally supposed to be a photo operation. That's why they sent the media there. They thought they were going to get a, some good press of them just kind of like bringing out some people in handcuffs. And look how good the ATF is. We stopped these people, these, these, gun, these gun runners and child abusers. Um, it even had a name. It was called Operation Showtime. That's all you really got to know. Operation Showtime. Think about it. March 30th, the FBI allows criminal defense deter- attorney Dick DeJurgen, Jergen, Jergen, I don't know how to pronounce it, D-E capital G-U-E-R-I-N, uh, to enter Mount Carmel unescorted to meet with David Koresh and discuss his legal defense and to negotiate a peace settlement. April 19th, after 51 days of negotiations, Attorney General Janet Reno, excuse me, and the FBI decide to flush the Davidians out of Mount Carmel. At approximately 6 a.m., FBI agents approach the residents in tanks 
um, that are specially equipped with like these giant booms, which can insert a chemical agent called CS gas. Now, before we go on, I just really want to point this out. CS gas is um, against the Geneva Convention. It's deemed too dangerous to use in war. We can't even use this against our own enemies. And here is the FBI using military tanks to dump this CS gas into this building. It's a highly flammable gas at that. It's like a powder. The real problem is, is because it's, and it's also because it's highly flammable, it always catches on fire. Every time they've used this gas, the last like 10 times, it's caught fire, massive fires, uncontrollable fires. And it, and it makes hydrogen cyanide when it burns. Now, I don't know if you know what hydrogen, hydrogen cyanide is, but it's the same shit they use in the lethal injection to kill people. Now, if you ever watch a lethal injection, they strap those people down. Now, I'm going to tell you the reason they strap these people down is not because they're afraid they're going to run away. It's because the, the, it makes your muscles spasm so violently that they can't allow that to be witnessed by the people watching this execution because it's too gruesome. So they strap you down. So when you're shaking, you're not like shaking all over, over the part. And you'll see in the in the video in the documentary these burned bodies. Some of these poor children, their backs are cracked backwards from the violent convulsing from this fucking gas burning. Remember, I told you you guys are gonna cry on those documentaries. Watch them. Um, now, so as these booms on these tanks smash through the walls um, of the residents, the CS gas is then sprayed inside. The FBI repeatedly broadcasts a message over the loudspeakers. Among other things, the message says, ironically, quote, this is not an assault. You know, as, as tanks are smashing through your building and, and dropping gas, it's not an assault. This is not an assault. Assault. Trust me, we're not assaulting you right now. And uh, this stand standoff is over. Um, at 6.47 a.m., the FBI tactical commander orders his field agents to use their grenade launchers to fire ferret rounds through the windows. Now, a ferret round is a 40 millimeter canister that discharges, discharges tear gas on impact. At 7.10 a.m., field agents report that uh, ferret rounds have been fired into all the windows um, at Mount Carmel. Some 389 ferret rounds. Now, remember, they've been dumping the CS gas for hours now with these tanks, but they've also just now shot 389 ferret rounds um, during the morning. At approximately noon, a fire breaks out at the complex, and it is soon engulfed in flames. FBI officials do not let fire trucks approach because they claim the risks of hostile gunfire. Nine Davidians survived this fire. Seven of them managed to get out of the complex on their own. Two of them were aided by FBI field agents. The survivors are immediately arrested and turned over to the ATF for booking. One ATF agent sees it, um, sees to it that his agency's flag is hoisted on top of the Davidsons, uh, the Davidians' flagpole. Because, you know, conquered. We came, we saw, we conquered. Raise our flag <laughs> on these people's property this military operation. Let's raise our flag like you would in war. Think how fucking crazy this shit is, dude. I, you guys really need to watch those documentaries. I, I can't stress it enough here, guys. Um, 76 Davidians die, including 27 children. Most die from smoke inhalation, but at least 20 Davidians have gunshot wounds. 
in Washington, D.C., Reno. She's the attorney general, Bill Clinton. Got to remember now, this, this only took place about 50 days into the Clinton's presidency. So this was a hot topic, and, and, and Ruby Ridge had just happened right before that. So this was like, it's a lot of shit piling up in your first 100, 100 days of a, of, a, of a presidency. So you can you can see that they wanted this ended quickly. And 51 days was not quick by any stretch of the imagination. So she holds a news conference telling reporters that the tear gas operation was necessary because she had received reports that babies were being beaten. Now, because remember, remember, this was a gun problem, but now all of a sudden it's babies are being beaten because that sounds better, you know, to the people. Reno nonetheless recognizes that the FBI operation was an abject failure failure, and then even offers her resignation to President Bill Clinton. President Bill Clinton tells reporters that he has no intention for asking or even accepting her resignation just, quote, because some religious fanatics murdered themselves. It's from the highest position in this country. April 28th, 93, same year, the Judiciary Committee of the House of Representatives holds a one-day hearing on the Waco incident. That's all you get, one day. Now, Reno admits that she had no evidence that any child was being beaten at the time or any time during the standoff. Reno and the FBI officials testify that they did not use any pyrotechnic devices that, and then they, they were surprised and saddened that the Davidians started a fire and that their field agents um, did not fire their guns at the Davidians at any point on April 19th. So at any point in this entire thing on that last day, that, that the 51th day, 51st day, when they, when they when all the fire happened and all that shit, they claimed they, now, they didn't fire not one round of ammunition, guys. May 23rd, same year, 60 Minutes rebroadcasts its January report about sexual harassment within the ATF. After the rebroadcast, Mike Wallace reports that almost all the ATF agents that he talked to said that they believed the initial raid on the Branch Davidians um, was, quote, a publicity stunt, the main goal of which was to improve the ATF's tarnished image because of the sexual assault and Ruby Ridge. August 6th, 93. The Department of Justice seeks and obtains grand jury indictments against um, 12 of the Davidian survivors. Now, they face various charges, including conspiracy to murder ATF agents. October 1st, the Treasury Department issues its report on the ATF's handling of Waco raid. Among other things, the report says that, quote, senior agents, uh, agency officials went to even greater lengths than previously believed to deceive investigators, and Congress. It said officials had changed a written record of the plan after the raid in a self-serving way and then lied about the altercations. It also concluded that the officials had tried to pin blame for their failure on an undercover agent who, in fact, had tried to stop the raid. And his name was Rodriguez. You'll see him in the show and you'll see his testimony, some of his testimony on those documentaries. He was in there. They, they, they put him like in a neighbor. And, and the ironic thing about that is David Crush knew he was an ATF member, knew it from the very get-go. He even took this dude shooting with him. Okay, these guns were legal. And while they were shooting, David Crush was basically telling this guy, look, I know, he told him, point blank, look, I know you're ATF. And I don't care. We're not doing anything illegal here. 
but you seem like a good man. Let me tell you about Jesus and preach to him. Um, now, after uh, issuing the report, Treasury Secretary Lloyd um, Benston, Benson announces that he is replacing the head of the ATF, Steve, uh, Stephen Higgins, and is suspending five other officials who misled Congress, the Clinton administration, and the press about what actually occurred. Uh, October 8th, same year, the Justice Department issues its report. So this is like six days later from um, the Treasury Department's report. The Justice Department issues its report on the handling um, of the incident. Now, this report, of course, finds that neither Reno nor any official with the FBI engaged in misconduct or made any mistakes. Not a single mistake. Perfect. You know, like that perfect call. Um, January 10th, now it's a new year, 94. Now we moved to 94. The criminal trial of the 11 survivors begins. Um, one survivor pled guilty and did not stand trial. That's why it was 11, not 12. Prosecutors with the Department of Justice claimed the Davidians ambushed and murdered ATF agents who were attempting to execute lawful warrants. Lawyers for, for uh, the defense maintained that their clients feared for their lives and acted in self-defense, which is perfectly legal under Texas law. You don't have to, if you're being unlawfully raided upon, even if it's police in Texas, you have the right to fire back. And I, I, that's probably pretty true in most states, I'm not going to lie. Um, you, you don't have to just take being murdered. And I have a lot of respect for police, but you don't have to take just being murdered. Like, you know, I don't recommend anyone ever pulling a gun on a cop. That's not what I'm saying here. So don't don't take me wrong here. I'm just saying in this situation, technically they were acting within their legal rights. Um, February 26, 1994, the jury returns its verdict in the criminal case. Eleven are acquitted of all conspiracy charges. Seven of the 11 are convicted of a lesser charge and four are acquitted of all charges completely. The New York Times reports that the jury's verdict amounts to a stunning defeat, not only for the Justice Department, who's prosecuted the case, but for the Bureau um, of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Now, Reno issues a statement that says the jury's verdict is actually a vindication of the federal government's version of the events, because the jury did not reject every single allegation made by the prosecutors. Reno claims the jury was sending a, quote, message that we were justified in our actions. Now, you really need to watch that um, the documentary to get what really happened here. I think it's in there. Maybe it's not. I don't know. So I'll say it just in case it's not. They got him on a gun charge. Nothing with the murder. Nothing, nothing with the killing. And here's what happened was... So they were like, they, they couldn't figure out if they, they were never told that if they convicted them for the guns, that means automatically you're convicting them of like this weird homicide in some, some ways. So after they did it, really what happened was, so the, the judge presiding over the case accepted it and, and actually said something kind of negative towards the prosecution. Like, Hey, this is kind of a bad case, blah, blah, blah. Went home that weekend, Janet Reno, uh, um, issues her statement right? The statement I just read, the judge comes back the next Monday and changes his mind and says, well, actually, now that I've reviewed it, when you said that these gun charges, well, that really means that you are convicting him on these charges that you've already said he wasn't guilty of. So he overstepped the jury 
to make this decision and then gave him the most maximum sentence he could give. Talk about injustice. So um, March 21st, the surviving um, Davidians and relatives of deceased Davidians, they filed a $100 million wrongful death uh, lawsuit against the federal government. June 17th, U.S. District Court Judge Walter Smith, um, he, he gives out stiff prison sentences to the Davidians, like I just said, who were convicted by jury in the criminal case, technically. Five Davidians received a maximum sentence of 40 years. Three of them received set, uh, sentences ranging from five to 20. The jury four women, just so you know how this played out because they felt so bad about what they had done, Sarah Bain, she wept outside the courtroom, wept outside the courtroom after the trial. But before the sentencing hearing even, Bain sent Judge Smith a letter that said, quote, even five years is too severe a penalty for these people. Bain attended the sentencing hearing in the hopes that her presence in the courtroom would remind Judge Smith of her request of leniency. Of course not. He's now working for the federal government. You know, Janet Reno issued her statement. They told him, hey, what are you going to, you fucking, are you serious? You can't, uh, you can't let these people go. It's going to hurt our narrative. And he's like, all right, well, let me see what I can do here. Come back and change the fucking jury. Um, July through August, 95, the House of uh, Representatives holds extensive hearings on the Waco incident. Justice Department and FBI officials testified that they had no warning that the Davidians were preparing to set fire and that no agent fired a gun at the Branch Davidians on the April 19th raid. Reno defends her decision now to have the FBI tanks attack Mount Carmel and blames David Koresh for the disastrous results. It's not our fault, it's yours. This is a new development, if you remember. Because in 93, as we talked about already in one of the timelines, she acknowledged that the assault was a mistake and tried to demonstrate that there would be accountability for that mistake by offering to resign. Remember? She was going to resign over this. The House committee subsequently issues a finding that Attorney General Reno, quote, knew or should have known that the plan to end the standoff would endanger the lives of the Davidians inside the residence, including the children. Her decision to approve FBI tank assault was premature, wrong, and highly irresponsible. January 18th, 97, a new film, one of the ones I've been telling you multiple times now to watch, Waco, The Rules of Engagement, is released at Robert Redford's Sundance Film Festival in Park City, Utah. Excuse me. The most dramatic contention in the film comes from a technical expert who examines the FBI's aerial forward-looking infrared. That's called FLIR. And they had that flying around the entire time that these tanks were uh, were hitting it. Now, this guy's not only just... It's just I want to just reiterate this. This guy's not just a, a technical expert who's looking at this film. He's the developer of the technology even, okay? And if you, FLIR is what you guys see when you're watching all those war, when you're watching all those, that war footage, and it looks like night vision, and really what it is is just heat sinking. And so you see all the, it's when you see the bullets fly, like when you see all those tracers, that's the heat. So this is not film. There's no like sun reflection in these things, which the FBI tries to say is what what's, what you're actually seeing here instead of gunshots. Um, so he's the developer of this technology even, right? So, so, um, in this film, right, he he examines their, and in the first film, in this original film, 
that here's the sneaky thing that FBI does. Instead of giving him the original copy, they give him like a, a fourth copy made. So it's like completely distorted comparative to what the original copy is. And the original copy later comes out, um, which makes it even more, you know, um, which shows it without a reasonable doubt. You can't, you can't deny it. Um, so the FBI used this FLIR film um, in the criminal trial in 1994 in an attempt to show that Davidian started the fatal fire. Now this, but the technical expert, uh, expert in the rules of engagement, you know, the developer of this, this technology itself, he claims that the film shows numerous gunshots directed at Mount Carmel complex. Now remember, they said not one shot was fired on April 19th from ATF, FBI, or any military personnel that were on site. The FLIR footage shows that's a lie. Um, now, the documentary film is subsequently nominated for an Academy Award and wins uh, an Emmy for its investigative reporting. It's, 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 legit, it's a legit documentary, guys. Um, July 1st, 99, Judge Smith de- denies a pivotal legal motion filed by the Department of Justice to dismiss the wrongful death lawsuits. The ruling paves the way for the Branch Davidians lawyers to now question under oath government witnesses about their conduct and to demand physical evidence from the federal government itself. Later that month, July 28th, the Dallas Morning News reports that the Texas Rangers, that's not the baseball team, that's the real Texas Rangers like the sheriffs, have discovered evidence that calls into question the federal government's claim that its agents used um, uh, no incinerary or pyrotechnic devices on April 19th because they're claiming the Davidians started this fire, that we didn't shoot nothing into this building. There was nothing that could have caused a spark or a fire that we were doing, right? So we shot no incineraries or anything that's pyrotechnic, like any of those canisters that we use with tear gas, no pyrotechnics involved at all. Myron Marlin, a spokesperson for the Justice Department, tells the newspaper that the allegation is, quote, nonsense that they use these. August 25th, 99, the FBI... So, so hold on, I just want to get the t- time here. So the, the first, that was July 20th, so a month later, after they said nonsense, there's no way we used anything incinerary. Are you crazy, guys? We're the FBI, we'd never do that. The FBI then comes out and has the issue again for like, the, what, the fourth time now? Just in the, in the in what we were talking about, since they've been caught, you know, it's how it always happens after they're caught. They issue a statement saying that, quote, okay, pyrotechnic devices may have been used in the early mornings, of April 19th. August 30th, five days later, the federal prosecutor in Waco, Bill Johnston, he bypasses the chain of command and sends a letter directly to Attorney General Reno. Among other things, the letter says, quote, I have formed the belief that facts may have been kept from you and quite possibly are being kept from you even now by components of the Department of Justice. Senator Phil Graham of Texas tells the press, quote, I hope Johnson is not punished for that. There's a long history in the federal government of hostility towards people who come forward with bad news. So he's like warning her, and he, he probably don't think she's in on it, but unfortunately she was. Um, hey, I think they lied to you. You might want to get ahead of this before these reports start coming out. A few days later, September 1st, 1999, the Justice Department dispatches U.S. Marshals to FBI headquarters to seize 
previously undisclosed videotapes containing footage of, you guessed it, pyrotechnic tear gas rounds being fired at the Mount Carmel complex. The videotapes also contain radio traffic of an FBI commander authorizing the use of pyrotechnic rounds. FBI officials had previously submitted sworn affidavits that they had no videotape before 10.42 a.m. on the day of the raid. And in a, but, you know, in a Freedom of uh, Information Act lawsuit, FBI officials told a federal judge under oath that the Bureau had no recorded radio traffic during the entire tear gas assault. The Bureau does not explain how the evidence uh, in its files remained unnoticed. September 9th, 99 still, Reno appoints former Missouri Janitor John C. Danforth as a special prosecutor to investigate whether the federal government engaged in misconduct at Waco and then try to cover up uh, its actions. Danforth says he will investigate allegations of, quote, bad acts. Here's the kicker, guys. Ready before? Could you imagine if uh, this happened today, like when uh, when Mueller was getting ready to investigate um, Trump for Russiagate? If he came out and said, hey, we'll investigate allegations of bad acts, and here's what he says about Waco. Could you imagine that this was that this happened today? With, uh, with Mueller just a couple years ago, but will not prosecute any government employee for, quote, bad judgment. He's basically just saying, you know, we ain't, we ain't prosecuting nobody, dude. The fuck you talking about? I'll look. I'll pretend. Uh, in Texas, Judge Smith becomes furious when he learns that the local U.S. Marshals have delayed executing his order to seize any evidence relating to the Waco incident from the local ATF office. Smith issued his directive quietly under a court seal we learned that the ATF was closing its office. The local U.S. Marshal spent hours consulting with both his, his agency's headquarters in Washington and the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Antonio before taking any action. It is unclear whether any evidence from the ATF office was removed, altered, or destroyed. September 15th, same year, 99, the Justice Department removes federal prosecutor Johnston from the Waco case. You know, the guy who said, hey, I think they're lying to you. Now you're removed. Justice Department officially say the move has nothing to do with Johnson's public comments suggesting possible government cover-up. Of course not. Five days later, Judge Smith postpones the wrongful death trial and related uh, depositions so that Danforth can interview the witnesses first. You know, we got to get our, we got to let him, we got to interview, the federal government got to interview him first before we let him, you know, talk in a wrongful death and get the real information out. Uh, in a letter to Danforth, Smith writes, quote, It is my fervent hope that your investigation, and certainly to a lesser extent, the civil proceedings here, will help to restore the public's confidence in its government. October 5th, a few days later, 15 days later, an expert in thermal imaging on videotape analysis tells the Washington Post, that he has now spent hundreds of hours reviewing various tapes of the Waco siege and has concluded that, quote, the FBI fired shots that day. The expert who had previously uh, been retained by the FBI as a thermal imaging consultant says, quote, the gunfire from the ground is there without a doubt. Okay, so that's the second expert now who's looked at this FLIR information. Uh, one in that in that documentary by the the designer of the technology, 
This one coming from a thermal imaging uh, uh, guy who was previously hired by the FBI to do the same thing. The Washington Post had him had him look at it. He says, without a doubt, fire, shots fired. October 8th, U.S. Army Colonel Rodney L. Rawlings tells the Dallas Morning News that the FBI knew that David Koresh and his followers were preparing to set fires on April 19th. Rawlings was in Waco assisting the FBI during the siege. First of all, think about that. Why is there a U.S. Army colonel anywhere doing anything related to a warrant being um, uh, executed for, for a citizen of the United States of America, for a private citizen at a private residence? Think about it. Think about it, guys. Think about the overstep here. Just that alone is an overstep. Um, on the morning of April 19th, he was in an FBI monitoring room where voices from within Mount Carmel complex could be overheard. FBI bugging devices allowed the colonel and law enforcement officials to hear everything from the beginning as it was happening. Rollins says, quote, anyone who says you couldn't hear what was happening at the time is being less than truthful, a.k.a. the FBI. The FBI, though, has always maintained that it was unaware of any Davidians' plans to set fires. Of course, we wouldn't use gas if we knew there was a possibility they might set a fire. October 9th, 99, newly released documents from the FBI show that agents asked for permission to shoot any unarmed branch Davidians who left Mount Carmel and approached their armored vehicles. Think about that. Hey, if these people are escaping this fire, and then even if they don't got guns, we got permission just to fucking mow them down. The request to use illegally deadly force was denied by FBI officials in Washington. The documents also outlined seven instances, though, um, in which FBI agents threw or launched flashbang grenades at Davidians who were exiting. <laughs> so now you can't shoot them with a gun, but you can shoot them with a grenade launcher flashbang. Uh, um, <laughs> earlier, and that was happened earlier in the standoff. Um, the documents containing this information were not turned over to lawyers, though, representing the Davidians in the 1994 criminal trial or to Congress as it was preparing for the 95 hearing on the incident. Now, borough officials, um, bureau officials said that the documents were either overlooked as they responded to previous inquiries or that such information was not specifically sought by Congress. Well, you didn't really ask for that specifically. You know, we just kind of overlooked this important aspect of what happened. October 14th, a few days later, Dallas Morning News again reports that the FBI had closed circuit cameras around the entire complex through the 51-day siege. No videotape from those surveillance cameras, though, have been made public by the federal government. Lawyers who represented the Davidians in both the criminal trial and the pending wrongful uh, death lawsuit are kind of outraged by this report, obviously. The lawyers suspect the FBI withheld the information about the cameras because of the images they captured on that very first day. References to those cameras were blacked out on the documents that the Justice Department um, had disclosed to the Davidians in the civil lawsuit. FBI and Justice Department officials have had no comment on the leaked documents. It basically said that they shot first, you know, but they can't admit that they, that they were the ones that opened fire on these unarmed people. David Crush came out, hands up, saying, don't shoot, don't shoot, women and children in here. 
what do you guys want? And they just fired on him. That's what happened. November 1st, 99, Justice Department lawyers acknowledge that about 10 individuals from the U.S. Army Special Forces, Bravo Division, they're like Green Berets, were at Waco during the siege, but they insist, because we've been so forthright, you know, this whole time, but they insist they were only providing technical assistance to FBI agents. Why do you need a, why do you need a Bravo team? They don't do assessments. They're there. They take orders and they go in and they execute. Fuck out of here. First of all, that's against the, talk about against the constitution. Military can't attack civilians. The fuck we doing here, dude? That's why you got police. Uh, where we at? Sorry guys. Um, uh, lawyers for the Davidians also said that, uh, they cannot quite, uh, no, they're told that they cannot question those soldiers face-to-face because, you know, an- anim- anonymity and cannot have their names even. The lawyers are told that if they want to persist in their claim that the soldiers had a more active role, you know, they should submit written questions. And, uh, you know, they'll see- receive some anonymous answers. But, you know, you got to protect, you got to protect U.S. interests. November 2nd, 99, Judge Smith warns Justice Department officials that he will hold them in contempt of court if they do not surrender all the evidence in their possession. The judge's order um, complains that the Justice Department has unnecessarily delayed the possible, um, even deliberately stalled, making arrangements for the transfer of classified documents the next day. That second documentary I told you guys to, to see, this is November 3rd, 1999, a new documentary called Waco, A New Revelation is shown in Washington, D.C. to reporters and researchers. Among other things, the film shows several ATF agents kicking and punching a cameraman from a local TV station on February 28th, 93. The ATF agents were angry because the cameraman was feeling their humiliating retreat from the Mount Carmel Ranch. January 24th, 2000, we've turned the century now. We, we, we came out of the 90s. We're now into the, the, the 2000s, new millennium. Think this story's over? Nope. Federal prosecutor Bill Johnston, uh, you know, the, the guy who said that I think they're, they're holding evidence, the whistleblower, he announces that he is now de- leaving the Department of Justice. Johnson tells the do- Dallas Morning News that he has been ostracized by the Department of Justice since he wrote Attorney General Janet Reno about the possibility of a cover-up. Next day, the very next day, 60 Minutes airs another story titled, What Really Happened at Waco? Dan Rather, this time, reports that 60 Minutes has hired an expert now of infrared imagery to examine the controversial FBI FLIR tape. Now, this is the third expert, guys. Remember the developer... The Washington uh, or the Dallas Star or whatever it was, they hired somebody. And now 60 Minutes hires a third expert to look at this tape. The only thing plainly visible to the naked eye on the FLIR tape is a series of flashes. Some experts say the flashes represent gunfire, but the FBI maintain the flashes are, quote, reflections of sunlight. As this expert views the FLIR tape on a television monitor, he, explain, he exclaims, quote, 
It's not the sun striking something. It's not swamp gas reflecting off the planet Venus, which was one of their excuses, guys. No bullshit. It's just swamp gas. <laughs> this is how fucking dumb they think people are, guys. It's swamp gas reflecting off the planet Venus. That's what you're seeing on this film that you know nothing about, guys. But these experts, they're telling you it's gunfire. No, no, no. It's gas reflecting off of Venus. <laughs> uh, he says, this is somebody shooting at the complex. Point blank. This is what you're seeing. You're seeing gunfire. It's undeniable. It's gunfire. February 1st, 2000. Five days later. In response to questions posed by lawyers um, in the wrongful death lawsuit, Pentagon lawyers file a sworn denial that there was any military gunfire on April 19th, 1993. But the formal denial includes a caveat. The Pentagon denies it based on, quote, currently available information. So what does that mean? First of all, you got to, it's always in the wording, guys. So what they say is no military gunfire. They don't say nothing about ATF. They don't say nothing about FBI. There was no military gunfire, they claim. And we deny any firing at all just based on currently available information. Information, you know, like that information that they've overlooked in the past or information that they've changed their mind on once people started asking questions that they've already, you know, so, so let's, let's just kind of just, so we save our ass, cover our ass a little bit, you know, just current the currently available information that you guys have shows that, you know, we didn't fire any shots. Now this response, obviously it confounds the lawyers who are seeking um, to identify key witnesses before these upcoming trial. March 15th, 2000, the same lawyers, they file a formal legal motion with Judge Smith accusing the federal government of mishandling and tampering with key evidence in the wrongful death case. Among other things, the motion notes that an FBI aerial photographer testified in a deposition that he shot 10 rolls of film, 10 rolls of film during this, but only seven rolls of film now exist. They won't give us three other rolls. Where are they at? What do they show? March 19th, four days later, an elaborate reenactment of the FBI tactical operations of April 19th is conducted at Fort Hood, Texas. Judge Smith orders the experiment to help resolve the disputed question of gunfire on April 19th. The FBI has long maintained that no agent member has fired any gun at the Davidians during the entire standoff, yet we've seen it you know, on the, uh, on the FLIR footage three different times now by three different experts. But the Davidians lawyers and others maintain, obviously the FBI's own FLIR film shows numerous individuals shooting, preventing them from escaping this burning structure. And that documentary shows it plain as day, the only exit where those, where 15 people were found with bullet holes, you know, suicide. The only exit that you could leave that burning house, you see multiple gunfires, hundreds of rounds going into that exit where they find 15 dead people with, quote-unquote, according to the investigators, self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Yeah, okay. Believe it if you want, guys. Believe it if you want. Watch the documentaries. Um, Judge Smith and Special Prosecutor John Danforth are witnesses to this reenaction, and both say they w- uh, will rely on the analysis of the film ex- uh, experiment by a British firm called Vector Data Systems. The news media, though, 
you know, the ones who keep, who back then journalists, journalism was real, right? They questioned the government and asked real questions to try to get to the bottom of it. Not just bullshit fucking pander. Um, since they were, since they've been so great at reporting on this and, and calling the FBI out and Janet Reno constantly, they're not allowed to witness this reenactment. Nah. Now nah, we know we're hiding all this information. We're gonna, now we're going to conduct this like secret um, reenactment that you guys can't witness. May 18th, I'm on my 18th birthday, guys. 2000. You wonder why I hate the government so much. My 18th birthday, this shit's going on. Judge Smith rules that the Branch Davidians lawyers have failed to prove that the federal government intentionally altered or destroyed evidence. Although some evidence may have been mishandled, the judge sees no reason to impose sanctions on the federal government. I mean, they only mishandled information and, and evidence. They didn't quite destroy it. They just kind of overlooked it and didn't offer it and some things went missing and, you know, they didn't purposely destroy it. They had good intentions when they did all this stuff. Uh, about a month later, June 18th, trial begins in the wrongful death suit against the federal government. Uh, a little less than a month after that, July 14th, the jury returns its verdict in the civil wrongful death case. The jury finds the federal officials are not liable for the deaths um, of the people who were killed there in 93. The Justice Department releases a statement saying, quote, this terrible tragedy was the responsibility of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, not the federal government. We didn't storm the place. We didn't pump gas in it. We didn't fire at people. We didn't have military there. We didn't have helicopter, Dewey helicopters. We didn't have uh, tanks. Nah. It's all just one guy. I mean, it's all his fault. Don't blame us. July 24th, 2000. Danforth issues an interim report that exonerates. Remember, remember the same guy who said he was, you know, he, he'll look for bad intentions, but he he's not really looking to prosecute anybody. Um, he gives his little intern report, you know, because you always give a, you always give the the um you always give the evidence that's gonna that's gonna be in your favor first, right? So that the news story runs with that, and then you then you release a little tidbit afterwards, right? That hopefully no one picks up on. So he does his little intern report first, which exonerates federal uh, officials and agents of any wrongdoing. Danford tells reporters, "Quote: I give you these conclusions with." 100% certainty. The blame rests squarely on the shoulders of David Koresh. This is not a close call. Not only is it just his fault, it's not even close, guys. There was zero wrongdoing. We didn't do we perfect call, guys. This was a perfect 51 days, perfect raid. No wrongdoing here. Although his investigation is not over yet, Danforth um, then tells reporters, you know, I'm 95% complete. Justice uh, Department officials released another statement saying, quote, we join Senator Danforth in wishing that this report begins the process of restoring the faith of the people in their government. You see why it was so important for this report to, um, to be shed definitely in this light? Because people are questioning their government right now at this point. And we can't have that. We can't have you questioning your government. That's dangerous. September 20th, 2000, one year 
before the attacks on September 11th. That's how recent this was, guys. Judge Smith formally dismisses the wrongful death lawsuit. Smith rejects all legal claims from the Davidians and finds that, quote, the entire tragedy at Mount Carmel can be laid at the feet of one individual, David Koresh. Do you guys see the, the talking point? It's the new timeline. This was this talking point, which they do now nonstop in today's world, was was um, disseminated across everyone who has any involvement in here. Here's the word we're using. Its entirety lays on the feet, notice how they use the same terms even, of one individual, David Koresh. It's his fault completely. No blame on us. Quit looking at us. November 8th, 2000, Danforth seeks and obtains a grand jury indictment of, so here, here he comes. One person's going to be charged, and you know who it is? You know who they're going to prosecute, guys? Bill Johnston. The whip, the guy who said, I think there's a cover-up. <laughs> as, if, as if they couldn't be more fucking um, predictable, right? I mean, I could predict every fucking move here. Because I don't do, I, because I don't trust my government. People that trust their government, they don't predict these. They're like, oh, this all makes sense to me. So the one person they indict is former Fed, federal prosecutor Bill Johnson. The five-count criminal indictment accuses Johnston of concealing his knowledge that pyrotechnic devices were used in the FBI at Waco. You know the guy who kind of just said, ah, I think they're lying to you, and I think they did use pyrotechnic. He knew about it, didn't disclose it quick enough. So he's at fault. Except, you know, if the FBI had no fault for firing pyrotechnics, why is he in trouble for having knowledge of that? Do you, do you see the do you see the problem, the logic there, guys? Um, now Johnson tells reporters that he is obviously being made a scapegoat because he undermined the legal stance of the Justice Department in the then-pending wrongful, uh, wrongful death lawsuit by raising the possibility of a cover-up. He maintains, uh, Danford maintains that Johnston is being prosecuted because he, quote, broke the law. February 6th, 2001, former federal prosecutor Bill Johnston pleads guilty to a single felony count in exchange of, the, his, of his guilty plea. Um, they, they agree to drop the, uh, a five-count felony indictment and to just recommend a sentence of probation. So as long as you shut up and take a little plea, take the responsibility for our little part of it, we'll give you probation. You be the scapegoat for us, just for the one little thing, pyrotechnics. Um, Johnson, the only person to be criminally prosecuted by Danforth, um, he was sentenced on June 7th, 2001, in St. Louis, Missouri. And then, and then the... Uh, the Office of Special Con uh, Counsel is officially closed, February 6, 2001. Um, so let's talk about now some unofficial findings um, of crimes at Waco, right? So there were no official crimes, according to the FBI. You know, nothing we could charge anybody for. Now, in a free society, a person who commits a crime is not exempt from investigation or prosecution merely because he works for the government. This is really important to understand. Or if because he wears a uniform and carries a badge. If that basic legal principle is taken seriously, it is not uh, extraordinarily difficult to identify crimes 
um, that were committed by federal um, government agencies at Waco in that 1993 raid. The first one on camera, not really has to do with people inside, but it's still a crime, right? And it was caught on camera. ATF agents attacked TV cameraman Dan Maloney. We talked about it. That was on February 28th. They physically attacked this local cameraman. He was on the scene covering the ATF raid for KWTX TV. After the firefight, he was filming these agents as they were retreating from the from the property. When several ATF agents noticed what he was doing, they screamed obscenities at him and punched and kicked him while others tried to steal his camera. Because he kept his camera rolling during this entire episode, this assault, battery, and attempted theft are captured on film. The evidence is thus overwhelmingly, right? It is a crime for an ordinary citizen to punch and kick a cameraman. Do you agree with that? It, it is no less a crime for an ATF agent to fucking do so also. This dude was not breaking any law. Yet they were never criminally prosecuted. Why? Are they above the law? Although this incident lasted for approximately one minute, the film footage is telling because it clearly shows certain ATF agents fit. Um, they felt perfectly justified in breaking laws. We had ATF agents who lied to federal investigators. Pretty much all the people that uh, the Mueller investigation on, on the Trump campaign, all the people that got prosecuted, do you know what they got prosecuted for, guys? Lying to fucking federal FBI agents. That's it. That was their crime. <laughs> people go free all the time for lying to the FBI, but you know when they really want to make a point, they'll get you. But they didn't want to make a point here, so they didn't get these people. Um, to avoid an actual, uh, an actual or perceived conflict of interest, Texas Rangers were asked to conduct an investigation of possible criminal wrongdoing by these ATF agents. The Rangers were deputized as U.S. Marshals and were asked to look for possible federal crime violations. In sworn testimony before Congress, one of the investigating Rangers said that um, the two ATF raid commanders, Phil Kajanaki and Chuck Sarabin, lied to him about what happened on February 28th. Because, like we talked about just a second ago, because ordinary, ordinary citizens are sent to jail for lying to federal investigators, the Rangers recommended that these two fucking jokers be indicted and prosecuted. Were they? No. They gave their recommendations to federal prosecutor Bill Johnson. Johnson, in turn, you know, the one who they, who they later prosecuted, in turn referred the matter to the Department of Justice in Washington. So he turned it over to his boss, and they took no action. In October 94, the Treasury Department did suspend these two fucking jabronis from active duty for making false statements, but they were subsequently reinstated with full back pay and had the entire Waco incident expunged from their personal records. So that's the reward you get for lying in the government's favor. You lie against the government when they're trying to do to you, they throw you in jail. No problem. Ruin your life. They have no problem doing that. Uh, FBI agents fired more than 350 fair rounds, even if, even if they claimed there was no pyrotechnics uh, at first. They, they did readily admit to 350 fair rounds. Now, the FBI has always admitted these, like I just said, in the April 19th attack. Now, these rounds were fired into the residence from handheld grenade launchers. Fair rounds are fired at such a speed that they are capable of causing serious injury or death. 
government documents and testimony um, euphemistically refer to the delivery of tear gas into the resist into the residence as um, if the ferrets were delivered, you know, by the United Post uh, Parcel Service. You know, we just kind of delivered them in there. We didn't fire them. But firing these rounds into a building without knowing which adults are threatening and which are not, and without knowing where these children are even located, manifests an extreme indifference to human life. Such indifference is not only uh, unconscionable, but it's also criminal. The special prosecutor investigation of the Waco incident tried to draw a distinction between, remember we talked about this bad judgment and bad acts. When he was appointed special prosecutor, he promised that he would not file charges against any government employee for exercising bad judgment. But the firing of fair rounds on April 19th cannot be brushed aside as simply poor judgment. A police officer exercises bad judgment if he uses the siren on his car to speed through a traffic to a dental appointment. What happened at Waco was far more serious. An ordinary citizen would not be accused of mere bad judgment if he used a grenade launcher to fire fair rounds into a nursery school. If a child were struck and killed by one of these rounds, the citizen would face murder charges. Even if the citizen intended only to scare people, he would be held liable for the second-degree murder because his actions consciously disregarded uh, a substantial and unjustifiable risk of harm to others. FBI agents may have been seen justified in firing these rounds into all the windows of the Mount Carmel complex if they had reasonably believed the children were going to be killed in a mass suicide. Attorney Janet Reno has already admitted, however, that no such agency existed on the day of the assault. Right? There was there was nothing that said that they were going to kill all these children. So maybe that makes sense. We um, fire this tear gas, maybe the children will come out because they're going to die anyway, right? Government officials cannot use the color of their office to commit crimes against citizens. I can't say it enough. Since at least one child was struck by this by one of these ferret rounds, proven. Second degree murder charges may be appropriate. I'm not saying they are, I'm just saying they might be. Note that such charges have been leveled against law enforcement officials after other controversial incidents. In 1999, for example, prosecutors in New York charged um, the police officers involved in the Amandu Diallo killing with, quote, depraved indifferences to human life, a second-degree murder charge that carried a sentence of 25 years to life. Whether or not sufficient proof can be mustered to sustain a a second-degree murder charge, charges relating to the reckless endangerment of the human life are certainly in order. Um, FBI agents use tanks to demolish uh, sections of this building. Now, they've always admitted that uh, its tear gas, quote, insertion plan called for tanks to smash holes in the wall of this complex. Government documents and testimony employ euphemisms to describe what happened. Reno, for example, referred to these tanks as good rental cars, guys. Because yeah, as a journalist, Hester, I mean, there were tanks. They're like military tanks. She goes, we don't need to look at these things as military tanks. They're really just like good rental cars. Good rental cars, guys. <laughs> they rented they rented car uh, cars from the from the military. Okay, tanks. Uh, An FBI supervisor, Larry Potts, spoke of quote poking holes in a building. You know, as if nails instead of tanks were being driven into the walls. 
Because federal officials and agents did not know where the Davidson, David uh, Davidian children were located, it was both unconscionable conscionable again and criminal to have these tanks smash into a residence and knock down walls. And they buried some of these kids when these walls collapsed. Does anyone doubt that if the Davidian adult um, adults had been holding children of senators and congressmen hostage within the building, the FBI tank assault plan would have been rejected out of hand? Or do you think it would have continued? What do you guys think? Is it not equally clear that if an ordinary citizen were to drive a car into the side of someone's home, indifferent to what might be on the other side of that wall, he would be prosecuted for possibly second-degree murder and should, and, and should someone, uh, if someone should be killed? The driver would also face lesser charges, such as reckless endangerment of human life. The FBI use of tanks on April 19, 1993, uh, invents an extreme indifference to human life. While it is unclear whether any Davidian was actually killed by the destructive activity, because you can't really prove it, and they you know, got rid of all the evidence, which you'll see in the documents, uh, the documentaries, uh, the law pertained... Uh, to the reckless endangerment of human life was once again, you know, violated. So there's there are some things that should have been further investigated. For one, these National Guard helicopters, right? Um, the National Guard, the ATF, and the Department of Justice have always maintained that no one aboard the National Guard helicopters fired on the Davidians. The pilots and the ATF field agents have all given sworn statements, sworn statements. So if you lie, you're, you should go to jail. That no person fired on Mount Carmel. Yet there is evidence to the contrary. Several branch Davidians claim they received fire from the helicopters. Davidian Wayne Martin, who called 911 soon after the ATF arrived in a frantic attempt at the gunfire. And there's something important to talk about Wayne Martin here real quick. Because they... Um, the government tried to act like these people were uh, um, right-wing extremists, that they were Nazis, right? And that's why they got to come in on these people. Look, you, I know you guys hate these these right-wingers. They're they're got guns. They're gonna they're gonna kill everybody. Half the branch Davidians were African Americans. There were Chinese people in there as well. They were a very diverse group. They were highly intelligent. Wayne Martin was the second African-American to ever graduate Harvard Law School. Just to, you know, just to kind of show you um, who these people were. You know, they, they, weren't, these, they weren't dumb. These weren't dumb rednecks. In fact, it later came out, and you'll see in, the, uh, in those documentaries, the ATF agents were actually the racist ones. They were flying Confederate flags. They had made racist comments in the past. They were... Um, they were flipping their dicks out and mooning the women, flicking them off all the time through the window. They shot their water towers out. They were living on rainwater for like 50 days. It's all about perception, guys. Um, so so he called, uh, you know, in a, in a frantic attempt to end this gunfire right away. Hey, they're, they're fucking shooting at us. Tell them to stop. Tell them that we are women and children here. His, report, his recorded phone call includes a statement about shots from the helicopters. Federal officials scoffed at the recorded statements, calling them self-serving. Well, I'll admit it's possibly true. The same could also be said about the denials from these ATF agents. 
Catherine Madison, a 72-year-old Davidian who was never accused of any crimes, told reporters that the helicopters fired on the residents. Another Davidian woman, Rita Riddle, told the Los Angeles Times, I heard the helicopters spraying the buildings when they went over. In a phone, in the most damning information, in a phone call conversation recorded um, a few days after the initial raid, ATF agent Jim Cavanaugh, he's the, uh, I think he was the negotiator. He tried to get David Koresh to acknowledge on recording and it backfired on him. Um, that the helicopters did not fire on Mount Carmel. There was no guns, no one fired. It's on the documentary, listen to it. The recording showed um, when when Koresh called the ATF agent a liar, Kavanaugh then backed off and said, wait, wait, hold on. I'm, I'm not disputing the fact that there was fire from these helicopters, only that the helicopters did not have outside mounted guns, to which Koresh offered no objection because he didn't know for sure. And it's plain as day. And the thing is like, well, I don't really know, you know, that I, well, I'll, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. I don't know if these guns were mounted, but you're saying that there was, that they didn't fire any shots at us. We know for a fact they shot at us. And he's like, well, I'm not saying they didn't fire your drum, I'm saying they didn't fire at you from mounted guns. You know, they had, they had assault rifles in their arms instead. So much better, right? Um, the criminal defense attorneys who went um, into the residence during the siege, they saw bullet holes in the ceiling of Mount Carmel with splinters of woods, you guessed it, plunged inward. Okay. So it could only came from the top. The Davidians explained that they were uh that those were some of the shots that were fired from the helicopters. Same thing happened with the water tanks. That was definitely fired from helicopters, you can tell by the angles. Um special prosecutor Danforth brushed all those witnesses aside though and concluded that there was no gunfire from helicopters on February twenty eighth. The ATF agents aboard the helicopters were supposed to divert the attention um, on the outside of the raid and just film the raid as it unfolded. And finally, they were supposed to just transport, if any, um, wounded people to nearby hospitals. Um, as the as the raid went away, though, however, it is certainly plausible that agents aboard the helicopters wanted to assist their fellow agents on the ground who were under heavy fire. Okay, Understandable as it may be, National Guard regulations prohibit Guard personnel from active participation in law enforcement activity, guys. Another important fact. But if there was strafing on the roof of the Mount Carmel residence, an even more serious allegation arises. Indiscriminately firing into the roof or walls of a building known to contain innocent people, more or less, um, including children, right? More important, the most important children, like 40 children, um, could result in possible murder and reckless endangerment charges. Because of the conflicting testimony and the gravity of the allegations, further investigations should have been warranted. Now, now the question is, um, FBI officials have always maintained that they had no prior knowledge of the Davidians' plan to set fires. Again, we talked about the uh, the testimony for Congress um, where they said, if we knew about plans to burn the place, we would have had another approach. We would not even come close to approaching that place. Um, Larry Potts, who was the supervisor in Washington, D.C., he testified, though, any indication about danger to those children, the rule was back off. 
The veracity of those high-ranking officials has now been directly challenged by U.S. Army Colonel who was at Mount Carmel. We talked about him before in that Dallas Morning News um, who was assisting Waco at the, at the siege. Remember, he said they had the bugs. And there, was no, there was no doubt that they knew that they were planning on possibly setting a fire. Um, those audio recordings have been part of the public record for years. Um, the FBI has used them in an effort to prove that the Davidians, not the Bureau, started the fire, so now they're trying to use them in the other way. Um, what is significant is that the Bureau officials have always maintained that the voices on the tapes were not clearly audible in real time. So they're always giving themselves like this, This, well, we couldn't really quite tell what they said in real time. The tapes had to be enhanced later, they said, to discover what was actually being said. Thus, the FBI did not have any advance warning of any fire plans. Colonel Rawlings, again, however, claimed that, quote, you could hear everything from the very beginning as it was happening. He further stated that FBI officials were using the excuse of technical difficulties to cover why they didn't react to the information they had. When asked about the Bureau's claim that it had no fore, uh, forewarning of a fire, Rawlings said, that is the worst lie of all. Colonel uh, Rawlings appears to be credible whistleblower. He is a combat-decorated helicopter pilot and a 31-year veteran of retired from the Army in 1997. Uh, inexplicably, the Waco report prepared by Special Prosecutor um, John Danforth does not discuss Colonel Rawlings' allegations, because of course we're going to leave that out. If the FBI knew of the Davidsons were uh, spreading fuel and making fire plans and did not stop these tanks from ramming in the residence, murder again, manslaughter, and perjury laws, among others, were again violated. Another reason they could have thrown some people in jail, yet they did not. Now the biggest question, was gunfire ever directed at the Davidians on April 19th? Again, FBI has always maintained that throughout the entire siege, its agents never fired at the Branch Davidians. The Bureau does not deny firing the fair rounds, however. According to the FBI, the um, Davidians' gunshot wounds were either self-inflicted or inflicted by other Davidians. Several infrared experts, as we have already discussed, have come forward, though, to contradict these claims. The FBI's FLIR film from April 19th contains flashes of lights. Uh, Edward Allard, a former employee of the Defense Department and Thermal Image Consulting consultant for more than 30 years, uh, appeared in the documentaries. We talked about that already, talked about it. We had uh, the two other guys came in and talked about it, the FLIR tapes, and they all had the same conclusion. The FBI fired shots that day. 60 Minutes hired a British Army expert. He said the same thing. Looks exactly as if they're fucking firing guns. Special Prosecutor John Danford hired two other experts to analyze the FLIR tape. They concluded that the flashes of the film were reflections of debris on the ground. And instead of acknowledging the conflicting experts' testimony on this important issue and reporting that the evidence was inconclusive, Danforth proclaimed with 100% certainty that the analysis performed by these experts showed that no gunfire was directed at the Davidians from government positions. Check out those documentaries. They 
prove all these theories wrong. Um, ordinary citizens can use deadly force to defend themselves and other forms of imminent harm. But if someone fired a gun to keep others from fleeing a burning building, which this FLIR evidence shows without, I'll go 100% shows that this, that, that that's what happened. Um, he would be subject to fucking prosecution for murder. Because there is conflicting expert testimony as to what appears to be on the FLIR tapes, and because of the gravity of, of uh, some of these experts' allegations, this should have been further investigated. That was warranted. We had uh, federal employees who obstructed justice. Janet Reno was asked in 93 to identify those at the FBI who participated in the decision-making process regarding the assault plan. She mentioned, among others, one, Assistant Director Larry Potts, Deputy Assistant Director uh, Danny Coulson, and Michael Cahu, Chief of the FBI's Violent Crimes and Major Offense uh, Offenders Section. Those names should have set off alarm bells with Special Prosecutor Dan Forrest investigators. Potts, Coulson, and Coho were suspended by the FBI in 1995 for their role in the controversial Ruby Ridge incident. These dudes are already fucked up. So, so you right around it's just red flags, right? Uh, Danforth does not mention that um, this at this though in his Waco report. Of course, another thing just just omitted, right? Um, the suspensions were not obscure personal decisions. They were reported on the front pages of the New York Times and the Washington Post, among other newspapers. Remember, because because uh, journalism was real back then. Coho was eventually sentenced to 18 months in prison, imprisonment for destroying evidence and lying to investigators about his his role in the Ruby Ridge cover-up. He admitted boasting to his uh, subordinates that when Justice Department investigators asked him about his conduct in the affair, he gave them a bunch of bullshit, basically, is what he said. Quote-unquote, bullshit. Real word. That admission is itself a damning indictment of the FBI's... Um, internal culture. Cahoe's defense attorney told the sentencing judge that Cahoe committed crimes to protect, quote, what he wrongly perceived as the institutional best interest of the Bureau. Department of Justice prosecutors told reporters um, that there was insignificant uh, evidence to prosecute Potts and Colson. Although FBI Director Louis Feech uh, are free, F-R-E-E-H, Frehe, I don't know how you fucking say that, and the Department of Justice condemned Cahoe's crimes, they allowed him to remain on the federal payroll until he reached his 50th birthday, thus ensuring his eligibility, eligibility for a federal pension paid for by, you guessed it, the taxpayers. Pots and, uh, <clears throat> sorry guys, my voice is starting to hurt from talking so much. I'm trying to drink some water here. Um, Potts and Colson presumably received their pensions as well. I couldn't find no information on that. Uh, a serious probe into obstruction of justice by the Bureau with respect to Waco would have quickly identified Potts, Colson, and certainly Cahoe as potential suspects. Um, Danforth should have hauled those individuals um, before a grand jury and questioned them about the missing evidence, but he did not. The FBI tactical commander... Richard Rogers was also involved in the Ruby Ridge incident and was disciplined for his conduct there. When Congress sought to question him about his role in Ruby Ridge in 95, 
he declined to testify, citing his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Excuse me. In the summer of 99, previously undisclosed audio tapes surfaced and revealed that Rogers actually gave the order to the FBI field agent to fire those pyrotechnic devices into the residence at Waco. This disclosure raised a deeply disturbing question. Why did Rogers sit passively behind Attorney Jenner uh, uh, Attorney General Reno, when she gave sworn testimony to Congress in 93 that pyrotechnic devices were not used against the Branch Davidians. When Danford's investigation asked Rogers about the obvious discrepancy, Rogers said that he was not paying attention to Reno's testimony. That's all you got to say. That, that's a pass. Danford shited Rogers for dereliction of duty, but declined to prosecute him for, quote, making or allowing others to make false or misleading statements. Yeah, he didn't out them for making a statement. Yes, nothing wrong there. Danford could have set his, um, sent his dereliction of duty findings to the FBI and demanded disciplinary action, including um, revocation of, of Rogers' um, pension, but he did not. And FBI Director Free, um, who tells Congress, um, and the press that he takes any bureau controversy, quote, with the most extreme seriousness, sure you do, buddy, has not taken any action, uh, never took any action of his own against Rogers. It is now clear that the FBI withheld relevant documents and videotapes from Congress, the Davidian lawyers, and the citizens who filed Freedom of Information Acts. The only question is whether this evidence was deliberately withheld or there was a serious um, a series of bureaucratic snafus. My conclusion, the Waco incident was the worst disaster in the history of the federal law enforcement. More than 80 people, agents and civilians, lost their lives in 1993. The American people are entitled to know exactly what happened and why. Unfortunately, the official investigation of the incident was soft and incomplete. Danforth's sweeping exoneration of federal officials is not supported by the factual record. It is certainly true that the Branch Davidians leader, David Koresh, cannot escape his share of responsibility for this tragedy. Scores of lives could have been saved if he simply walked out of Mount Carmel and surrendered peacefully. Which he tried to do at the beginning, but he could have done it for any, 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 any point in that other 51 days. But his refusal to do so cannot absolve federal officials from what they did. Danforth hoped his report would help to restore the American people's faith in government. After everything that has come to light in the years since these agents um, and the uh, Davidians perished, it is difficult to follow his logic. The ATF, the FBI, and Attorney General Reno exploited the public's faith in government when they tried to deceive everyone about what happened there. Recall, for example, that Reno had to recant her statement that babies were being beaten during the standoff. Because numerous crimes at Waco have gone unpunished, the people serving our federal police agencies may well come to the conclusion that it's permissible to recklessly endanger the lives of innocent people, lie to newspapers, obstruct congressional subpoenas, and give misleading testimony in our courtrooms. Our courtrooms. If such activity becomes more common than it even is today, those agencies 
will surely become lawless and unaccountable. And they are going further and further that way as we speak. The only way to counter that danger is for the American people to distrust government officials, limit their powers, and demand accountability. In 1997, FBI Director Louis Free told Congress, quote, we are potentially the most dangerous agency in the country if we are not scrutinized carefully. The carnage at Waco is a grisly testament to just that. All right, guys, that's all, uh, all I got for this episode. It's a little bit long. I think we're just going to do one, one part. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep it all fucked. You guys have to listen to it. Maybe it's boring. Maybe it's not. It's a lot of information. Again, Waco, Rules of Engagement. And Waco, A New Revelation. You have to watch them. They're both free on YouTube. You ain't going to pay shit for them. About four hours worth of content um, between those two. Really recommend you watching that. Uh, watching those. Uh, that's it. We'll be back. Uh, this can come out Monday. We'll be back sometime towards the end of the next uh, next week as well. Or same week. Uh, in the meantime, tell your friends, share the episodes, speak the truth, promote liberty, buck the establishment, and don't kiss your mother. You have just witnessed the lyrical stylistics of chromatic distortion. I get a feeling there's going to be a riot. I don't read the newspapers because they all have ugly prints. At the starting of the week, at Summit Talks, you'll hear them speak. It's only Monday. Negotiations breaking down. See those leaders start to frown. It's hard and gone day. Tomorrow never comes until it's too late. Come, come, come with it.
station, generation, separation, situation, dissipation, shot. Another shot, another shot, that's in the vessel crushing, pop the hardest, cold, the gun is hot, shot. I'm not sure if they done or not, I'm not sure that they wanna stop, the gun is cold, the blood is hot, shot. Shot, 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 shot. The hearts are weak, the guns are not. 